At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. to it. Well, we all know the story uh, of Noah. Noah trusted in God, and uh, Noah built an ark, and through Noah and his family, uh, humanity was preserved. Uh, You've probably told that story to your children, but I wonder if you know what happens next. (laughs) They leave this part out of the story of Noah. (laughs) The boat lands, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk off of the wine, and passes out uncovered in his tent. Or how about uh, this story you might know? Uh, What about the story of Abraham? We know this story. Abraham was a great man of faith, wasn't he? God spoke to him and told him to leave everything that he knew and go off to a faraway land, and we know that this great man of faith obeyed God, and, and, and he went just like God had told him. But do you know what happens next? Well, what happens next is he lies about his wife and says that his wife is his sister so that he doesn't get killed and his wife is taken into another man's house. <laughs> um, oh, how about, how about this? Uh, we all know the story of Moses. Mighty Moses, the mighty man of faith, the man who led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, just plagues from heaven from this guy. I mean, just an incredible, I mean, he's a hero, right? except for before all of that happened, he killed a guy and hid the body. (laughs) These are the heroes of our faith. These are the people that we're supposed to look up to. What about King David? Oh, man, the the greatest king in all of Israel. There, There was no greater time in the history of Israel than when King David sat on the throne, except for uh, King David committed adultery and then had the dude that was the guy's, had him killed and implicated the whole army in the killing of the guy. And yet he's supposed to be this great hero of our faith. Or what about Samson? Well, <laughs> Samson, that great warrior judge, I mean, just muscle strong, killing the Philistines. Yet his sinful exploits, I really can't even say out loud. You're not, I mean, the stuff that Samson did, you really can't even say in mixed company. When you're reading the story of Samson with your kids, you just have to like skip over stuff. Like, we'll talk about this later. (laughs) And so it turns out, church family, that the so called heroes of the Old Testament are not very impressive. And the reality is, this carries over into the New Testament when we meet the disciples. I mean, these guys are not very impressive at all. And so though they have Sunday school uh, songs written about them, though you have children's books written about all of these men, they're actually not that impressive at all. When we meet the disciples, they're bumbling, they're fumbling, they're getting it wrong. Jesus will tell a parable, and they do not understand. Then Jesus will explain the parable, and they still don't get it. Or or how about this? Uh, Jesus will do an amazing miracle like feeding the 5,000, and yet they don't see the deeper implication that Jesus is trying to teach them that he is the bread. The, the disciples totally miss it. Time and time again, when Jesus does these incredible miracles, they end up looking at the sign rather than what the sign is pointing to. 
they, they are not impressive at all. And on top of that, Jesus is constantly having to rebuke them. It's like every other page, Jesus is having to rebuke these guys. Here comes the parents with their kids wanting to bring their kids to Jesus so he can pray for them and bless them. And they're like, get these kids out of here. And Jesus has to rebuke them. Or how about this? Jesus is constantly telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you're not. The Messiah doesn't suffer and die. And then they're, they're rebuking Jesus. And then Jesus has to rebuke them for rebuking him. As a matter of fact, he, he tells Peter that he's Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, sit. Like, that is the caliber that these guys are. And so the reality is the disciples were not the Navy SEALs of spirituality. The, the reality is they were not the tip of the spear. They were not the top of the heap. They were not the spiritually elite. They bumbled and fumbled their way through their relationship with Jesus. They got it wrong. They dropped the ball. Their faith was weak, and they struggled the whole way through. That's the the picture of the disciples. And so church family, please hear me this morning. The Bible does not present Christianity as a group of elites that you must prove yourself to join. The Bible does not present Christianity as a group of elites which you must prove yourself to join. And so the question is this morning, why do so many churches perpetuate that type of culture? Why do so many churches perpetuate the type of church culture that says, we've got it together? We're all good here. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. And if you become like us, you could be fine too. Why do we, why do we as the church tend to perpetuate that type of culture? The reality is we have not arrived. We do not have it together. And so in light of all of that, let me give you the main point of the sermon. Are you ready? Here it is. You are not very impressive. <laughs> Welcome to Gospel Community Church. You're not very impressive, but watch this. You're deeply loved. You're not very impressive, but you are deeply loved. Why do we spend so much time trying to convince other people that we're impressive? Why, why do we get in conversations to where we're really just angling and jockeying, trying to figure out a way where we can put all of our accomplishments on display in front of these other people so that they think that we're very impressive? Why do we do that? When the reality is that we know we are not very impressive at all. Just like the disciples, just like me, just like you, your faith is weak. You struggle to maintain even the simplest spiritual disciplines. Amen? <laughs> you covet what other people have, and you're offended when you don't get what you feel like you deserve. But despite all of that, despite all of your failings, you are deeply, deeply loved by God. The, the father, the father has sent his only son to die for you in your place for your sins out of a place of love for you, even though you're not very impressive. But that's how much he loves you. He loves you so much. He has a beautiful future planned for you because he loves you. And right now he is pouring out his love for you in more ways than you could ever imagine. You are not impressive, but you're deeply loved. And so can't we all this morning just take a deep sigh of relief that we don't have to pretend that, that we're collectively here as a church family saying we're not very impressive. And so I don't have to try to convince you that I'm very impressive. We can all say we're sinners bumbling and fumbling our way through, yet we're deeply loved by God. Can't we just relax this morning at the fact that we don't have to pretend? We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. We can all admit we don't have it together. We're not okay. We're not fine. We have a deep need for Jesus. 
That's why we're all here this morning. Okay, let's navigate our way through this text because, church family, I want us to be set free today. I I want us to be set free from all of the effort it takes to perpetuate the illusion that we're all fine. And I think this text will help us do that. Okay, here's what we're going to see. First, dim-witted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part one. Second, it's a real simple outline this morning. Second, dim-witted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part two. And third, dim-witted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part three. All right, let's get into the text this morning. Can y'all tell I'm excited? Let's do it today. Here we go. First, dim-witted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part one. These dim-witted disciples show their ignorance right out of the gate. They, they show their ignorance in the fact that they're at the Last Supper. They're, they're sitting at the Passover meal, watch this, arguing over who's the greatest. They show their dim-wittedness. They show that they don't get it. And yet Jesus shows his love for them by reminding them that he's going to give them the kingdom. He shows his love for them even though They're totally dim-witted. Let's look at verse 24 together. Y'all ready to get into the text? Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. (laughs) This is incredible. Can, Can you imagine? Jesus is there. They're all dressed in Passover white. They're celebrating the Passover supper. Jesus changes the Passover the way they'd practiced it for thousands of years. He changes it to, to say, this bread is now my body broken for you. This is the cup that has been poured out for you. And they argue over who's the greatest. I mean, it's astonishing how, and you would ask yourself, how did, how, did they get, how did they get from Jesus saying, this is my cup, this is the blood, it's going to be new covenant, here's the bread. And then how did they get to this part where they're arguing about who's the greatest? I mean, look at, look at the verses just before. Let your eyes scroll back up to, to 23. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this, namely betray him. So Jesus explains the Lord's Supper to them, and then he says, I'm going to be betrayed. Now you can see how they get to this conversation about who's the greatest. Who's going to betray him? I bet it's you. It's certainly not me. (laughs) I mean, I would, it's probably that guy. It's probably him. It's it's certainly not me. You want to know why it's not me? Well, because uh, Jesus let me go with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Did you guys see that? You guys didn't see that, but I did. It's like, oh, yeah, well, well, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, when he passed out the baskets, he gave me the basket first, not you guys. How about that, right? So, so in the context of trying to decide who's going to betray him, they stumble into this conversation about who is the greatest. And it would be embarrassing, uh, you know, just in general, but this isn't the first time they've had this conversation. Back in Luke chapter 9, they've already had this conversation about who is the greatest disciple of them all. This is a constant reoccurring theme that they, that they have done. Now, one cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker over who is the greatest. Look at Jesus' response here. And he said to them, 
the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. He, Jesus wants something different for these men. That, that, that's what he's trying to communicate to them. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For the one who is greater, uh, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Watch this. But I am among you as the one who serves. He, he begins by describing what they shouldn't do. They shouldn't be like the kings of the Gentiles, who basically the kings think that they're so impressive, everyone should do what they say. And he's like, no, no guys, we, we have to do something different here. And, and, then, and then he says, instead of being the senior member, acting like the senior member, act like the youngest. Again, remember in this culture, um, young children were like not to speak unless spoken to. They were low man on the totem pole. So he's saying instead of taking the senior role with all the senior privileges, no, act, act like the youngest, the, the lowliest. That, that's, what, that's what you should do. And then, then he moves on to give them yet another example of at, in our culture, the person sitting at the table, they're fancy, right? They're impressive. The, the, just think in your mind, I mean, just the best steakhouse, you know, th there's a, a little table in the back that's reserved Right? And there's the guy in the nice suit, two supermodels on either side. There he is sitting in the back of the table. And then there's the guy that's, that's bringing out the food. And who's greater? Well, Jesus says, well, isn't it the guy sitting at the table? Isn't that what everybody thinks? And they're going, yeah. But then Jesus turns it and he says, no, no, it's, it's the guy who serves. It, it, it's, it's the servant. It's the one who takes the, the low spot. That's, that is the one who is greater. Now, What's really helpful here as we're reading these narratives, as we're getting close to Jesus' arrest, his death, and his crucifixion, what's so important is for us not only to understand what's happening here in this text, Luke, but to understand what's happening in the broader context of the synoptic gospels. So here's Jesus talking, communicating to them this concept of servant leadership. That's what he's if you want to be a leader, you need to serve. That's what Jesus is saying. And we know from the Gospel of John that not only does Jesus communicate to them this principle of servant leadership, but the Gospel of John teaches us that he doesn't only say it, but he demonstrates it. After saying this, Jesus gets up from the table. He removes his outer garment, his Passover white robe. He sets that aside and he picks up a towel. And he grabs the basin, and the thing that they thought they were way too impressive to do, which is wash the feet, that's exactly what Jesus does. Watch this, including Judas's feet. Not only does he say it, he communicates it. Now, here's, <laughs> here's what I want us to see. If you're taking notes, write this down. We are not too impressive to serve. We're not too impressive to serve. You're not that impressive. I'm not that impressive. Jesus is trying to communicate to these guys, you're not too impressive to serve. This is what servant leadership is. When we refuse to serve other people, it's most likely because we think we're too important. <laughs> we think we, what I've got, I don't have time to do that because what the, the things I have to do, they're very, very important. I, I'm very, very important. My time is very, very important, and I just do not have time to serve. Listen, you're not too impressive to serve. 
Here's Jesus showing us, getting down on his hands and knees and washing the feet of the disciples because Jesus, Jesus is modeling this for us. And so husbands and fathers in the room, help me today. What is your attitude, husbands and fathers, when, when you enter into your home? Is your attitude, I mean, I pay the bills around here. I don't do dishes. Oh, no, no wives in the room said amen? Not a single amen from a wife in here? What is your attitude, men, when you enter into your home? I'm the dad around here. I pay the bills. I don't, I don't do the dishes. I don't fold laundry. That's not stuff I do. Is that your attitude? Wives in the room. I'll, I'll get on y'all too. That's fine. Wives and mothers in the room. Next time you feel like, I don't want to make the lunches. I don't want to do the laundry. Remember that you're not that impressive. How about church members in the room? Help me today. Now I'm going to preach. Church members, are there areas in the church where you feel like are beneath you? Oh, I don't do that job in the church. I mean, after all, I'm a community group leader. You know, I don't take out the trash. You know, that's not what I do. You're not that impressive. And listen to me, now now that I've offended everyone in the room, let's talk about me. Right? There's no one in the room in more danger of believing they're impressive than me. I'm the guy on the stage with the microphone. Don't you see how tempted I am to think that I'm impressive and that there's stuff in the church that's beneath me to do? I mean, look, they're like, I'm on the stage. I got a microphone. They're filming me. It's like going out to YouTube and Facebook and all that stuff. And listen, I don't even put it on there. I got people that put that stuff out there for me. You don't think I'm not tempted to think that I'm impressive? Help me today, church. This, this is real. We are all tempted to think that, that we're way more awesome than we actually are. And by looking at these disciples as they bumble and fumble through this whole thing, through, I mean, th- this is an amazing dinner with Jesus, and they don't get it at all. They're bumbling and fumbling through this entire, this entire thing. And so we're not that impressive, but we are. We are deeply loved. In verse 28, Jesus does not flip the table over and kick them all out of the dinner. Isn't that what you would do? You, you just said, I'm going to break my body. I'm going to pour out my blood. And they're like, I think I'm the greatest. <laughs> Get out of my dinner. I want to sit and eat the Passover dinner and drink my glass of wine by myself. Y'all get out of here. If it wasn't written in the authoritative, infallible word of God, I don't know I could believe this, but, but here it is. Watch what Jesus does. It's incredible. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He encourages them. He encourages them. You, you guys are never going to get it. He doesn't say that. You guys are never going to change. He doesn't say that. Get out of my dinner. He doesn't say that. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He he begins to encourage them. And instead of (laughs) yelling at them, instead of shaming them, he wants to take their minds and point them not to who's the greatest, but he wants to point them towards this kingdom that they all will inherit and that they all will be there with him ruling and reigning over all the universe. He's like, why are we arguing about who's the greatest? Why are you guys trying to be so impressive? D- don't you see? This is, this is for all of us. I- I'm giving this to all of us. Look at what he says. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This judging is, is that picture of what Jesus ruling and reigning with Christ over the whole universe in the forever kingdom. Don't you see what Jesus is, is doing here? He, he's not condoning their behavior, but he is giving them grace. Don't you see what Jesus is doing here? You see, church family, giving grace is not the same as condoning bad behavior. Sometimes we can get that mixed up. But despite their weakness, despite their sins, they actually have not abandoned Jesus yet. So he reminds them of their future reward. And so why would Jesus give this to them? Why would Jesus give this to us? This same promise is for us, church family. It's because he loves us. Not because we're impressive, but because he loves us. Second, second point in our outline. Dimwitted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part two. Now, <laughs> in this next section, the dimwitted disciples show their ignorance uh, by contradicting Jesus. Now, what we're going to see is the king of the dimwitted disciples. His name is Peter. And he's going to contradict. Jesus is going to say this thing's going to happen. And he's like, no, it's not. <laughs> You're going to deny me. No, I'm not. I'm ready to go die. Like. All right. But he shows, watch, he shows his love for him because he makes this promise to him. When you, when you turn away from me, I I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. Watch how this happens. Verse 31. I love this. <laughs> I'm, I'm imp implanting here my own uh, voice of how I think Jesus would say this. Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, I imagine that of you, that he might sift you like wheat. I imagine that at the table during the discussion about who's the greatest, who do you think speaking up the most? Si probably Simon, probably. And so he directs this next section towards Simon. So he's speaking to Simon, but if we understand the Greek there, Satan demanded to have you, if you know the Greek, that, that's actually you all or y'all. We would say y'all. So he's directing this to Simon, but he's actually directing it to the whole disciple group. Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of y'all like wheat. Now, what's interesting to note here quickly is that Satan has no rights. Uh, Satan here has to make this request. He's making this demand, but we'll see that verse 32, but I have. So Satan has no rights here. He, he must ask permission, which means that all of the trials that we face are actually under the sovereign will of God. So he, he asked this question. He, he demands, Satan asks, demands to, to have to sift them like wheat. He, what, he, what Satan is wanting to do is that during this next, what's about all trials? Jesus is about to be arrested. After he's arrested, he's going to be put on false trials. After the false trials, he's going to be crucified. And through that sifting, he wants their faith to blow away like chaff. That, that is Satan's aim. He, he wants to take this group of men, which are about to be in just a little while filled with the Holy Spirit and going out to plant the church, which is leading us even here today. We're, we're here in the line and lineage of those men who planted churches, that planted churches, that preached the gospel, that planted churches down through the ages. And here we find ourselves today. Satan was eager to destroy that movement right then and there during the trial and death and execution of Christ. 
That's what Satan wants to do. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I wonder if Peter understood the implication of what that meant in that moment. I prayed for you. Satan is demanding to take your faith away and destroy this whole movement. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. What this means is that Peter will not fend off Satan because of his own strength or his ability. His own impressiveness is not going to (laughs) fend off the works of the devil. His perseverance and the perseverance of all the disciples is not that strong. Instead, Peter's perseverance and all the disciples' perseverance finds its root in Jesus' prayer for them. In Jesus' intercession for them on their behalf, that's what gets these men through. Church family, the only reason that you or I maintain faith in Jesus is because Jesus has prayed for you. Jesus has called out your name specifically in front of the Heavenly Father. And that's the only reason that you're here today. The only reason that you stay in your faith. The only reason that you maintain your faith. The only reason that you keep going with Jesus. The only reason that you keep picking up your Bible and reading it. The only reason that you keep praying is because he's praying for you. Praise him. Praise him. If you're taking notes, we are not too impressive to be in need. We're not that impressive. We are not too impressive to be in need. Right here, Peter is in need whether he realizes it or not. And Jesus is there to meet that need through prayer, moment, every hour, every day, in the rest of to be in need. We need him every moment, every hour, every day. And the reality is, the longer that you are a believer does not mean you become more and more self-reliant. The longer that you are a believer means that you become more and more reliant on Jesus and his prayers. The reality is, we are all in a constant state of need, so let's stop acting like we're not. Amen? We're all in a constant state of need. Let's stop acting like we're not. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He, the reality is he will fall away, despite the fact that Peter's about to say that he's not going to fall away. But he will also be restored. We know that that happens. Again, just go read the book of Acts. You see Peter restored. You see Peter encouraging the brothers. You see churches planted in the gospel go out. But the truth is, if Peter would have maintained the illusion, he would not have been able to strengthen his brothers. If Peter would have had the attitude of deny him, what are you talking about? Deny him three times? Who said I did that? That's not true. If he would have maintained that illusion, how could he strengthen the brothers? He couldn't strengthen the brothers unless he was real about what he was really going through. Unless he was open and honest and transparent about his struggles. If he wasn't able to go to those guys and say, I denied him. There there I was in the courtyard and this this young servant girl, I I can't believe myself. I denied him. Yet he's so good that he restored me. And, and he'll restore you too. Don't you see, if he wasn't admitting his own faults, then how, then how could he strengthen the brothers? Verse 33. <laughs> Peter said to him, oh, oh boy, here we go. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And in a matter of hours, he's going to be denying him. And Jesus is right there in front of him. 
it's not, you have to understand what, what's going on in that courtyard. It's not as if Jesus is off in the courtroom and Peter is by himself. No, no, they're together in the courtyard. Jesus makes eye contact with Peter after he denies him three times. He denies him in his presence. And in verse 34, and Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Peter is filled with pride, thinking more highly of himself than he ought. But Jesus loves him so much that he's willing. What's the deal with the rooster? Like, what's going on here? Jesus loves him so much that he gives him an alarm bell. That's what this rooster is. Jesus gives him an alarm bell to awaken his conscience. That's what's happening here. To awaken deep conviction. That's what that rooster crowing is. It's to awaken deep conviction within his soul that will lead him to repentance because Jesus loves him enough to bring him to repentance and he uses the rooster and his prophetic word to show him love. And so make no mistake, church family, you are deeply loved and instead of leaving you in your sins, Jesus refused. Jesus has loved you so much that he has chased after you, that he has chased you down. Even though you were running away from him, he would not let you get away. He came after you. He has come after you multiple, multiple times, don't you see? He has sent people who love you. He has in your life so that he can chase you down to bring you to a place of repentance because he loves you and he wants you with him. Praise him. Praise him. That, that's what he's done for Peter. Okay, third and last this one's funny. <laughs> Dim-witted disciples receiving Jesus' love, part three. Now, Jesus loves them so much, he wants to prepare them. He's about to die. He's going to be with them for a little while. But then he's going to send into heaven, and then their work really begins. Now, they will have the help of the Holy Spirit. We know that. But it's going to get rough. They, they have to train disciples, they have to plant churches, they have to keep the gospel going out, yet there's going to be an increase of enemies, and so Jesus' desire for them is for them to be spiritually ready to get the job done. He's trying to prepare them to be spiritually ready, and they go, we got two swords! Oh, Lord. Okay, here we go. Verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out, he's referring to their other missionary journey where he had sent them out. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They get that answer right here. <laughs> they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay, now, now this can be a little confusing, but just stay with me. We have to understand that Jesus here is not speaking literally. Let me prove it to you. In just a moment, in a few hours, they're going to be in the garden. The troops are going to come to arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls out a sword, cuts the guy's ear off, and Jesus rebukes him and stops him. So, so he's not saying, <laughs> we all need a bunch of swords. He, he is Jesus is saying, it's about to get really difficult, and so you need a, a spiritual money bag <laughs> filled with spiritual gifts. You need not a literal, you need a spiritual sword to fight the attacks of the enemy that are about to come on you. You need a spiritual backpack filled with spiritual supplies so that you can get through this next season of what you guys are going to go through. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Verse 37. For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. Jesus here is about to quote Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Guys, you have to be ready. That's what Jesus is saying. Guys, get your spiritual sword, get your spiritual knapsack, get your spiritual money bag, because I'm going to be hung on a cross in between two thieves. I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. I'm going to die in your place for your sins, don't you see? And verse 38, and they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. They, they missed the whole point. Jesus is saying, spiritually, don't, don't you see the, the amount of of pressure you're about to come under. Satan is trying to attack you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I mean, we know that all of them are martyred. All of the disciples get martyred except for John, and John's boiled alive and exiled to the island of Patmos. It's, it was really, really difficult, and Jesus' heart and his desire is for them to be spiritually ready to take on the attacks, to, to do what they need to do, but they miss the whole spiritual aspect of it and take it to a literal physical aspect and say, we got two swords. They missed the whole point of the kingdom that Jesus was offering to them. They're still thinking physical kingdom. We got the sword. We got two swords so that we can go fuck the Roman government and overthrow this corrupt religious system. We got swords, Jesus. We're ready to go. Look at what Jesus says. And he said to them, it's enough. It, it, <laughs> I'm done with this conversation. So he's not saying it's enough like, Oh, we have two swords. You know, three would have been nice, but two's enough. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is saying, it's enough of this talk. Enough of this talk. It's like, it's like trying to reason with your kids. Like, you're reasoning with them, reasoning with them. They're still not understanding, and you, you finally say, this conversation is over. We're done now. We're done. No more, no more talking. We're done talking. That's what he's, he's explained it. He's explained it. He's explained it. They're like, we got two swords. Like, okay, well, this conversation is over. That, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. They, they totally miss the entire point. And so write this down, church family. We are not so impressive that we understand all spiritual realities. We are not so impressive that we understand all. Some, some of y'all got systematic theology, got an ESV study Bible. Oh, bless God. So some, some of y'all got systematic theology books. Some of y'all know your confessions, and that's great. I, I hope you have all those things. I hope you have a Matthew Henry commentary. I hope you have an ESV study Bible. I hope you have a Wayne Grudem systematic theology book. I love that stuff. I, I hope you have it. Please go get it if you don't. But that doesn't mean we understand all spiritual realities. I, I've, I've spent years and years and years studying the Bible, and there's still so much I do not know. There, there are so many things that the Lord, even in my life right now, so many things that the Lord is trying to teach me that I just don't get. There, there's so many mistakes that I have made that I keep making because I don't understand all the spiritual realities that the Lord is trying to teach me. And so, and so I hope that our church culture, from Sunday to Sunday, as you go to your community groups, I hope that we're not fostering a culture that postures like we've got it all figured out. Oh, yeah, I know the Bible. Listen, you don't ever master the Bible. The Bible masters you. And so we, we need not posture like we've got it all figured out, like we know everything, that we, we don't struggle with sin. That I hope that our church culture is a place to where, where it's okay to not be okay. 
Don't, don't you see how burdensome it is? It's so burdensome when someone comes in broken and weeping and their life has fallen apart. And, and they come to a place like this and, and they know they need help. They know they don't have it together. They know that their marriage is a mess. They, they, they know that they have this estranged relationship with their, with their mom or with their dad. And th- their life is falling apart. They, they, they've got this bad diagnosis from the doctor. And they come in hurting and broken and weeping. And all, if all they see is a group of people that have it all together, we communicate to them that it's not okay to not be okay here. I pray that we never burden people that way. I pray that I never burden anyone that way. I, I don't want to take someone who's, who's broken and needs help and say, no, no, we don't talk about that kind of stuff here. We're, we're all pretending that we're okay. And if you're not pretending that you're okay, you're kind of not welcome here. You talking about your stuff is kind of reminding me of my stuff, and I would rather not have this conversation. When you bring up your sin and the things that you're going through, that might actually expose my sin and the things I'm going through, and that's going to make everybody uncomfortable, so please, let's stop the conversation. Let that not be, let that not be true of us, church family. Don't you see, here in our text, the buffoonery, <laughs> the bumbling and fumbling of these disciples let us know that we are not alone in our own failings. This sets us free. This sets us free for pretending that everything is okay. One of my, my mentors, he, he constantly says this, and I, I remember it all the time. He says this. <laughs> he says, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Can I tell you, I say that to myself before I go into meetings. I say that to myself often before I come on the stage. You have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. Why do I do that? Because my heart is trying to tell me the opposite. (laughs) You've got something to prove. Go preach a good one so you can prove to your congregation that Right, go, go up there and use big, fancy words to make everybody think that you're smart. Right? This is what's going on in my pressing heart. And so I have to remind myself, I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. I am not impressive, but I'm deeply loved. And that's where we find, that's where we find our hope. Well, what are we to do with a text like this? Well, he, here's what I, I want us to do as a church. Th- this is my call to you as the congregation, as your pastor. I need you to help me in doing this. Here it is. We need to foster a culture of dependency by way of transparency. We need to foster a culture of dependency, meaning a deep dependence on Christ, meaning we don't promote ourselves as if we have it all together. We explain the reality that I'm totally and completely dependent on Jesus and his prayers for me. I need Jesus praying for me. I'm dependent on him. And we we cultivate that, that culture of dependency by being transparent. By going to your community group, by sitting in your DNA group, and the thing that you don't want to say, that's the exact thing that you should say. <laughs> oh, boy. That, that When you go to your DNA, when you're sitting in that DNA group with, with those men or with those women, and that thing that's in the back of your mind, that sin that you're struggling with, that thing that's really going on, and you're like, I really don't want to say this, that's the exact thing you should say. That's the exact thing that you should say. Why? So you can be transparent. So that you can be open and honest about this is what's really going on in my heart. This is what's really going on in my life. 
and let those other men away. Now, now listen, listen. When that happens, when that happens, I'm praying it does happen. When that happens, if you're the one hearing that, give them the gospel. Don't freak out. Oh, my God, I can't believe. Give them the gospel. Tell them that Jesus has shed his blood for that pornography addiction. Tell them that Jesus has shed his blood to heal that broken marriage. Tell them that Jesus has shed his blood to mend that relationship. Tell them. Give them the gospel. That's how we're going to cultivate that in our church. And and that's how we cultivate that in our homes. But by not presenting yourself to your children, moms and dads, presenting yourself to your children as if you have the Christian life figured out, Show your children that you're just like the disciples, bumbling and fumbling the whole way down the stairs. This is how we we have to cultivate this type of dependency by way of transparency. And so let's say it all together. I am not impressive. I am not. We can do it a little better than that. We can do it more impressive. How about that? I am not impressive. But I'm deeply loved. The reality is... (laughs) We spend way too much time trying to convince other people that we actually are impressive. The reality is we have not arrived. We do not have it all together. Our faith is weak. We struggle to maintain even the simplest spiritual disciplines. But despite all of that, we are deeply loved. The Father has sent his only son to die in our place for our sins because he loves us. He has a beautiful future planned for you. And he is pouring out love on you in an incredible way in ways that you don't even see. Let's praise him. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I am not a big deal. (laughs) The people in this church are not a big deal. We are not very impressive, but what is amazing is that we are deeply loved by you. Lord, I pray that this church would never foster a culture that lifts ourselves up and says that we are well put together, we're well established. We have it all together. We know what we're doing. But our church culture would be a gospel culture, a gospel culture that says we're broken, we're weak, we're needy, and we're totally and completely dependent on you. Lord, I thank you for praying for me. Thank you, Lord, for praying for me. Thank you for praying for these people. Lord, we covet your prayers. We're grateful that you pray for us, and we know that we're only here today because you have prayed for us and you have kept us. Lord, keep us humble, keep us dependent, and keep us open, honest, and transparent with each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.